We're joined on the Difference Makers today by the owners of the Savannah Bananas, the Coles, Jesse, Emily, and their newborn son, Maverick. Thanks for coming in today. Absolutely. Excited to be with you. We start uh, where we usually do, and that's with biographical. And obviously, uh, Jesse and Emily, particularly Jesse, has made the rounds around town and given his story quite a bit, uh, his baseball story, his life story in the last couple of years. I'm really interested in how you two got together. I have a feeling that it involved baseball. It did. It well, did. Well, why don't we jump with have? We'll have Emily tell the story, and I, we can. I'll jump in and share. But it's a it's a pretty epic story. I was working with uh, minor league teams, actually Ripken baseball. Bill and Cal Ripken own a couple teams. I was with their team in Augusta, Georgia. Actually, the Green Jackets, which many people around here are familiar with. And my boss at the time heard Jesse speaking at a conference that he was holding um, at his previous team in Gastonia, North Carolina. And immediately, my boss left the conference and went outside and called me and literally said the words, I met the guy you're going to marry. And I was, you know, 24 working at a team. Marriage was very far from my mind. Um, But it was interesting because then he and I got in touch just professionally to share ideas because she said, if you're not going to get married, at least talk to him and get some ideas because you guys are basically the same person. So I did. I reached out to him and we talked and we became friends. And uh, I guess the the first time that you actually met, you came to the ballpark in Gastonia, North Carolina. That was in 2010. Mm -hmm. And when you showed up, I don't think you'll forget that either. Jesse was teaching the players uh, who were shirtless at the time how to do the thriller dance on the field in yeah, the middle of the way afternoon. Too young for that, yeah. probably, right? <laughs> but it was a hundred degrees. So I was sweating like he was crazy. In his, yeah, he was in his black tuxedo. He used to wear a black tuxedo back then, teaching the players how to dance thriller, which is just something that you don't see. I mean, I worked in baseball, you know, so I'm I'm showing up. It's pregame. They're supposed to be taking batting practice. They're not. It's five o'clock, and they're on the field shirtless, learning the thriller dance. And, and, <laughs> and I found this out years later. She said I smelled absolutely terrible. Well, so yeah, the fact that she sweating. actually gave me a chance after that was pretty impressive. <laughs> But that was our first meeting, and yeah. then we got back together, uh, connected in Myrtle Beach at the minor league promo seminar. Yeah. And you were living in Augusta and Gastonia at that time. Is it a long distance relationship initially? Oh, there was no relationship. Yeah, we didn't didn't jump into a relationship at all. It was basically just kind of respect for each other and what we were doing with our respective teams, and so we were just kind of learning from each other at that time. But of course, over time, friendship grew. And yeah, at the minor league promo seminar, we spent three days just talking about what we wanted to do and the vision for making baseball more fun and making it all about entertainment. And we clicked. We talked for about 24 hours a day for three straight days. And at that point, she was up in Vermont working for another team, left that team and joined us in Gastonia, North Carolina, and became the first ever director of fun. And so she took on that title and that position. And I think it was just three years later, two or three years later, that the last game of the year in front of a sold-out crowd, I stopped the game in the middle of the game in the yellow tuxedo and dropped down to a knee and asked her to marry me. It's good to be the owner that she can stop the game. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So well, it was funny. We delayed it for about 20 minutes. So I got down on a knee, and I had a, the ring inside a baseball. And I had the baseball open up, and I ended up having a fireworks show go on for about 15 minutes on the field. And the umpires and the players are like, are we ever going to start the game again? But I was like, nope, this is our moment. And I wanted to say yes. And fortunately, she said yes in front of the sold-out crowd. And then that's where the Savannah story started. So the director of fun now, is, he wears a very colorful outfit. He's very much – he's he's almost a wannabe 
Jesse, yes. I assume that you as a director of fun was at the was at the mold. Did you set the mold? <laughs> yeah, I definitely started it. Uh, the hot dog costume used to be my go to thing. But yeah, as time has evolved and obviously as we've grown our family and had Maverick, we knew that the director of fun had to, you know, had to had to leave that to somebody else. So yes, we did just hire another professional uh, director of fun. Yeah, and let's be clear, I want to be like Tyler Gray, our director of fun. He doesn't uh, want to be like me. Uh, he takes yeah. it to another level. It left he the does. cruise industry to join us as a top cruise director and he's been a great addition to our team. So you mentioned the Savannah story. Yes. All right. So (laughs) Jesse went through all the trouble of planning this epic proposal. And I I think guys in general just have all this pressure on them. So I felt so bad that he'd gone through all the trouble. I mean, he was getting secretive fireworks permits to pull off this fireworks show during our proposal. I mean, he went through a lot of work for it. So immediately after I said, you know, you've done so much to make this a special weekend for me. He'd flown our families in. Um, I said, I want to do something little for you and um, just plan this little getaway to savannah georgia and so we came down to savannah together he had never seen savannah before and of course being the the ballpark junkies that we are the first thing we wanted to do with our first night here was go to the local ballpark and and see a game and so we did we went to grayson stadium and it was a beautiful saturday night and we watched the sand nets uh with the former team, know. we say. Yeah. yeah, we don't really speak the name. <laughs> Is it bad uh, luck? Or? <laughs> no, we just stay away from New it. New story. <laughs> New story. Moving on. Uh, so, yeah, we just we went to the ballpark that night and had an awesome night. And, you know, Jesse will tell the story of how immediately he called our commissioner of the league and said, you know, I want to come here if this place ever opens up. He was just in awe of the, the majesticness of that stadium. Yeah, I walked in like a kid in a candy store. You know, I saw this ballpark. I said, wow, the history, the character of the stadium. You could feel it. And I didn't know at that point that Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron and Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams and all the greatest players played there. But I, you know, the brick and the, I was just blown away. You could feel it. And uh, when I was, when I looked around and saw there was less than, you know, 500 people in the stadium for a minor league professional game. I mean, we, we had a whole section to ourselves. On a Saturday night. On a Saturday night. It was 80 degrees. I was like, what's wrong? And, you know, I watched the game. It was great baseball. There just wasn't much going on. There wasn't a lot of energy. And we knew what we did from dancing players and grandma beauty pageants and all the fun. We're like, this could be really special. And the whole weekend we spent in Savannah, we we saw the community and the culture and the vibe. And we're like, this could be epic. And fortunately, you know, things happen for a reason. And we believe that with everything in our life. We found out the team was leaving. They wanted a new stadium. They weren't able to get it. And the city gave us a chance. And I can't thank the people with the city, the Joe Shearhouses in the world who was there and everyone else that said, we're going to give this little college summer team a chance. And they did, and the rest is history. Right. And it, and it wasn't a smooth transition. I've heard, Jesse, I've heard you speak before the difficulties <laughs> when you got here, and uh, I'd be curious to hear Emily's version of it. Yeah. Uh, well, what a lot of people don't know is so we had previously set our wedding date at um, 10 10. So October 10th, we were supposed to get married, and October 5th, we got the keys to the stadium. So we're on, you know, what's supposed to be this emotional high, like the best week of your life. And we grab the keys and, you know, we, we walk into the stadium and just immediately are, are kind of let down because the place had just been deserted. Right. Things had been torn out and left and abandoned. And, and about a year removed at that point or was it just no, months? It was just months. a couple of months. They so yeah. finished in 20. Okay. Yeah. No, but had... the phone lines were cut. The internet lines were cut. It was It was a tough scene to walk into. Right. I mean, we were at literally sitting on a picnic table, just us and our staff. That was the only thing you could sit on. There weren't seats. There, there weren't 
desks, there weren't chairs, there weren't anything. So we, we pulled an old picnic table inside and kind of set up shop. And that was our, our scene. That was our starting point. So obviously looking back, it's a, a great story to say this is where it really started, but it was a pretty low point to walk in and say, we truly have nothing. We are starting with nothing. But it only got worse. Yeah. The stadium was nicer <laughs> than the house, right? Yeah. Oh, this, yeah. The stadium was beautiful. And, and the house situation is, as you've heard, I mean, we only sold one ticket that first month. I mean, it gets so bad that in middle of January on a Friday at 445, we got a call that uh, we overdrafted our account. There was no money left. And Emily and I were at my uh, best friend's uh, wedding up in New Jersey and just shows you the type of person Emily is. She, we were driving back and she said, we have no other options. We have to sell our house. And it was our dream house up in Charlotte near our team in Gastonia. You know, we put a lot of work into it. It was a beautiful, beautiful house and we had no other options. So we put the house on the market. We emptied out our savings account and we said, we have to go all in on Savannah. And that's where we found that decrepit, falling apart house and put an airbed in there and started making ends meet. And it's crazy to think that was less than three years ago. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the house. Decrepit, I don't think, (laughs) sums it up. I found it first. As a woman, it was pretty frightening. Frightening for everybody, but particularly for a woman. Absolutely, absolutely. But I actually found it first. And knowing our situation, I knew it was our only option. Mm -hmm. But I was terrified to show Jesse. I knew he was not going to want to move his new family. I mean, we had just gotten married. You know, you're supposed to be living it up and and loving life. And I knew he wasn't going to want to move us in there. And sure enough, he shows up on the day that I'm showing it to him, and he took a couple steps in and took a couple steps right back out. <laughs> he just said no. no. Way. He just said no, 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 and just repeated it and ran out of the house. Um, but after talking about it and coming to our senses and realizing it truly was all we could afford, we decided to just put in a little elbow grease and clean it up a little bit and make do. But we actually slept with our socks on on the airbed because the floors were so gross. I mean, a palmetto bug landed on my. On the, I thought it was a cockroach, but I learned down here they're called palmetto uh, yeah. bugs. I've learned that in yes. my time uh, on my face in the middle of the night. Um, but you know what? I think that's so important for business owners, entrepreneurs, anyone to go through the challenges to really realize: Do you believe in what you're doing? Are you willing to go all in? Because I tell you, that brought so much conviction for Emily and I. We're like, yes, we're going all in because we believe this can be special. And it made when every game started selling out and the whole community finally got behind it, it was the most rewarding feeling in the world. And, you know, going back, I wouldn't do anything differently. You know, I would have liked to have some more real meals instead of the food we were forcing ourselves to eat right. <laughs> and slept on a real bed. But uh, uh, it's funny to look back onto now. Right. I think it was important for our staff to see, too, what we were going through. I mean, they knew we were giving it our all. They knew we weren't living it up in some country club, you know, <laughs> while the team was struggling in the beginning. We were real with them and it was it was tough for all of us, but we were in it with them and you know those people are still with us on our staff and we're still a family and I think starting that together and and starting at the bottom and growing together really has helped us mold into the work family that we are and that's a that's a great segue in three years obviously you've you've set a, a new tone here probably a new standard for college summer leagues and I know it all comes down to 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 fans first and to get fans first starts with your staff and your the whole sense that you are a family. Can you kind of talk about how maybe the way you guys operate your your team and your staff is a little different than, than maybe what others do? Uh, fans first is everything for us. So one of our big goals is to be the most fan-centric company in the world and provide the best fan experience. And I think where most people think fans, we know the secret. And our biggest fans are our people, our employees. You know, those are the people that get so excited when we do something great that they call their parents. They're wearing the merchandise all over town. They're proud to say they work for the bananas. So we try to take care of them. And when you focus so much on your employees and your people, 
they take care of the customers and the finances and everything else takes care of itself. And, you know, we pride ourselves in that. And I think we found the statistic recently, Emily, I think it is a millennial leaves a job every 13 months right now. Mm-hmm. It's statistics are staggering. People are leaving jobs. Mm-hmm. Yet in three years, we've had zero voluntary turnover. So people aren't leaving because we're trying to care for them. And, um, you know, a great story on that was uh, Danny McCarty, uh, a young man who's now our vice president of our whole franchise. And he started with us and fought for a job. I mean, Emily could share. He was trying to, everything he could do to get a job. He left voicemail after voicemail after voicemail. <laughs> and so finally we gave him a shot. And that first year, when no one was paying attention, he was calling, making calls after calls to try to get the community to buy in. And finally, when it became the bananas, people started answering his calls. And that first year, he raised over $40,000 for local nonprofits and single-handedly helped us sell out almost every game that first year. And after the season, Danny's from Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And the one close bond him and his dad have is the Cleveland Indians. Mm -hmm. And so his dad, he he told, Danny's told us so many stories. I mean, he's actually got a Cleveland Indians tattoo. (laughs) During the 97 World Series, he cried as they lost to the Marlins. I mean, this this is his life. And his dad, that's the one thing they always talk about. Well, if you remember a couple years ago, the Indians went to the World Series. So Emily came up with the idea. She goes, he's been unbelievable. Let's surprise him with tickets to the World Series. And so what we did is we brought the whole staff together, and we got him a toy airplane, and we handed it to him. And we said, Danny, this is an airplane that represents how far you've come with us, how far you're going, and how you've taken everyone with you. And he looks at it and goes, oh, cool, guys. This is, this is pretty cool. We said, oh, yeah, one more thing, Danny. Uh, tomorrow, you're flying out to go to Game 1 of the World Series with your dad. And to watch him right there, we got it on video, he immediately said, shut up. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he got emotional. Right. And the coolest moment was the entire staff started cheering because they were all for him. There was no jealousy. There was no, why aren't I getting this? And when we called his dad, his dad started crying. They were two of the first people in the stadium to watch the game one of the World Series. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment and a memory they'll never forget together. Mm-hmm. And we were able to help provide that. What else is more important for you, for your staff and for trying to build something? So it's something that Daniel will never forget, we'll never forget. And that's how we build our organization. Right. How can we provide the best fan experience for our people and then for our customers? And if you do that, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting. Usually we do the nerding out segment at the end, but let's, let's go ahead and <laughs> turn it on its head now and talk a little bit about building culture. A workplace culture is, uh, whether you're a humongous corporation or a family business, everybody is trying to, to looking for that, that magic bullet in terms of the culture. And when people come to your games, they see the, they see the fun little between innings things and the the all-you-can-eat food and all the little things that you guys do but that's just kind of what's hanging out on the surface Mm -hmm. what underneath emily can you speak to this a little bit about what is what is that culture how long does it take to establish and what do you got to do to keep it going and growing and evolving I think a lot of it starts immediately with the hiring and the onboarding. And I've always been the person that was over HR, but actually Jesse is the one who who came up with changing our hiring system a couple of years ago. And so now our hiring process is not the norm. You do not just send in a resume typed on a piece of paper. Uh, It's a multiple step hiring process. And it starts with things like your future resume. We have people write out their future resume, not their current. We want to know what your dreams are, what your path is in the future, how we can help you get there, how this particular job helps you get there. Um, We do a video cover letter rather than just writing a regular cover letter. That way we can see their personality. So it really starts then. Um, And we fly people in. And when when they arrive here, going to their hotel is not just a normal night going to a hotel in a new city. There's a basket waiting for them. There's things that we've 
we've found out about them personally. And so the touches starting from that very first moment when we interact is really how the culture is starting to be built. And from then on, I mean, it just takes on a new level of interaction and and personality and uh, friendliness. I mean, we become friends with these people. We make sure that the people we're bringing on are people we want to hang out with, you know, like-minded people with the same vision. And so really, then you fast forward a year or two years, they've been working with us, and of course it works out because we did the homework both ways and we made sure that this was going to be a relationship that could evolve together because we were like-minded. Jesse, I don't know. I mean, it's great. What stand for so many businesses don't know what they stand for what their mission what their vision you know what they're trying to accomplish and so we're very very clear on what we want to do and one part she uh, didn't mention about the hiring was our fans first way we have everyone write an essay on our core beliefs our fans first way very simple always be caring different enthusiastic fun growing and hungry and that's a part of our culture. We have it in our. We don't just have it on the walls. We talk about it every day, mm, and we catch people. It, yeah. yeah, and we catch people doing things right, not just catch people doing things do wrong. We recognize people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many offices. People are catching people doing things wrong. We're talking about the positive moments. We call them fans first moments. Every day, what are those fans first moments that are created for our customers, and what are those fans first moments we're creating for our staff? And when you build that positive culture, it's unbelievably contagious, and it builds momentum, and so it makes it fun to work. You know, you don't want to say, am I going to do something wrong? It's always about what do we stand for? And that's the most fan-centric company in the world and creating that fan's first way. So uh, it's fun. It's just a lot of fun. Do you have metrics? Do you have performance reviews? Do you, is, it, is there any traditional, anything traditional about it at all? <laughs> We have some traditional things in our office, but we do stay a word from, away from the word policy. And I'll the word tradition. That. We don't even... <laughs> well, we do some things that um, we just kind of rename. So we'll do check-ins with our staff. We don't make them formal meetings. We don't mm-hmm. say that they're a, a review um, because I think that's intimidating and we think mm-hmm. that that's a corporate language. And so we don't. We just have casual check-ins where we're constantly talking and asking people how things are going and getting inside their minds. But honestly, we work so closely with these people, we can get the vibe if something's off or if we need to yeah we we do walks around the field constantly we take people to lunch and i don't sit down much and here it is emily we're just walking around you lead by talking to your people feeling the pulse what's going on when you really know your people you can tell by their facial reactions what's going on i mean i know immediately if tyler our director fund if something's off i'll grab tyler what's going on and we'll know and i think that's such a key point and once you know your people it's not a mystery when something's wrong And so it's just, I think, leading by walking around is a famous uh, thing that's said a lot, and I think you really need to do it. Another great example is Jesse's office. You know, you would think the owner has his own closed-door corner office right now. Jesse's literally in the middle of a room with four desks around him. So he knows exactly what's going on. He's in the culture, and and he notices if something's off because he's not in a corner office with a door closed. He's in it every moment. extension of your people is is the team obviously hmm. these aren't these aren't employees they aren't paid they're they're college students they're with you for probably what a 10 12 mm-hmm. week period i'm always struck with that in mind of how they buy into everything as well they'll get out there and dance they'll worship the baby they'll do this they'll do <laughs> people that be are listening and worship the baby they're like what are you talking about uh, <laughs> how did how did you get did they buy in from the start? And if not, how did you get that buy? No, no. I mean, our, when our our first time in Gastonia, North Carolina, we started back in 2007, 2008, we had this idea, we're the only team in the country with players dancing. 
So the first day before practice started, we brought in a choreographed dance instructor to teach them how to dance. And this one player looked and said, no way, no, no, I am not doing this, and walked away. So we taught everyone on the team but him to dance. Mm-hmm. Halfway through the season, he's watching as these guys who are dancing are the most popular players. Peer they're signing, they're signing the most autographs. They're getting into it. <laughs> so finally he goes, I want to be that guy. I'm a good pitcher. I want to be popular. So he gets out there, rips his belt off, starts dancing on the field, and became one of the most popular players. Later I saw he, on, him on a billboard in Los Angeles. He's now a male model, which is hilarious. Oh, magic but, Mike? <laughs> yeah, it's not Magic Mike. His name was Chris. But um, when you see it. So we're very intentional when Emily talks about the orientation. When we bring the guys in, that first day is an immersion into our culture. We have a fans first playbook that we give to our staff that we also give to the players, what we stand for, who we are, what matters most. We talk about stories. We tell stories about Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seahawks when he played for us and what he did for the fans. And we explain that. And then we say, we have a lunch. We have a full lunch where they get to know our staff. And then we say, guys, in about a couple hours, you're going to have two to 3,000 fans that come in just to watch you practice. And they're like, no way. No, that's not going to happen. I'm like, guys, no. They're going to watch you practice. That's how big this is. That's why giving roses to little girls in the crowd matters. That's why greeting fans and signing thousands of autographs matters. And they don't believe me. So at 3.30, about an hour and a half before we open the gates to FanFest, I bring them outside. And they see the line with hundreds of people. And they're just shaking their head. They're like, no way. And then that night when they see 3,000 people watch them practice... They're in because they understand there's no team in the country having 3,000 people watch them practice in such a special feeling that they know they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. From that moment on, they understand it. Could you get that if, I mean, you both have worked in, in, in the minor leagues. Could you get that with professional players, even though they're probably about the same age, at least in, in the lower minor leagues? Could you, could you get the same kind of buy-in from them? You can't. Um, the minor league system is governed so strongly so by strictly. the major league teams that there is a lot of rules. There's a lot of red tape, and you yeah. can't do nearly the amount of things we, we do. Yeah, we hate red tape, so right. we try to eliminate it. Whenever you're told we can't do something, we want to do it. So the players can't dance in the minor leagues. They can't get in the crowd. Like Our players did a conga line through the stadium this year with about 500 kids on top. On, during on the game. It, during the game. Yeah. And then our players go on dates with fans during the game. Actual yeah. dates where they dress up and they have a meal. You can't do that in the minor leagues. But again, what is our goal? We want to make baseball fun and provide the best fan experience. And the players here understand it. So if you were a professional, you'd have to you'd have to own the whole league and not be minor league baseball to be able to do that. Let me spin that a little bit. In the hierarchy of college summer leagues, the Coastal Plains League is, is not at the top. If you were to try to do this at, say, the Cape Cod League, where a very high percentage of the players are going to be drafted, a, mm-hmm. a, a significant amount of them are probably going to play at, even at the major league level, do you think you could get the buy-in there? I mean, is it is is I guess what I'm getting at it. Do you feel that what you do is so infectious that everybody's going to buy in if if they can? Yes, if it's done right. So we've had ten players drafted from the bananas in just two years mm-hmm. that have gone on. One of those players, Bo Salser, was a tenth round pick, and he came back and he said. I was so blessed to be a part of this. I've been to so many minor league ballparks over the last two years, and I've never seen an experience like this. If I could come back and play for the Bananas and still play professional baseball, I would do it. So again, it's finding the right mix of players, and they have to see it. You know, you have to feel it. And I think if you don't get a part of an experience, it's going to be tough to say, I would be a part of it, and I would want to do it. One last thing on the players before we, before we move on is I know that they are college Students And I know that you, you just mentioned you don't like red tape, but I know with the NCAA there is a lot of red tape. Can you kind of talk about how you navigate that side of it or what all the considerations are? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go into that. I mean, 
I don't want to say you ask forgiveness before you ask permission, but you know, again, we know what we're trying to do. And so I've, I've been like a broken record. It's fans first. So we will do things that probably are questionable. Our players are in tons of music videos. They are out there, but luckily the league has been great with the communication with the NCAA that uh, they've been aware and, and we're not doing anything that's completely, we're not paying the players. I think there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot more leagues and, and businesses that have issues when they're paying the players and all that, you know, we're just trying to provide a great experience for them. So um, I think the challenges with the NCA, the biggest one is the fact that we only have the players for a certain window. You know, our, one of our best players, we had a guy from university or from Arkansas that played in the college world series. You know, he, he didn't get here till end of June. So we have this small window to have the players. You know, I wish we could have a larger window to really build them into our culture and create a better experience. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about, or we mentioned the Coastal Plain League, and I know that it is a group that it, it is a league that's growing. Obviously, they're, they're getting more teams in the South. Mm-hmm. Can can you all speak to to where you see the Coastal Plains League going, and and what kind of role you guys are playing in in developing it? <laughs> uh, you know, I've seen so much growth in the coastal plain league. Emily, I know it's been a part of it for six or seven years now, and I'm going to my 11th or 12th year. You know, before it was all about the baseball, and I think what it's changed to really be more about the experience, and you can see that with the attendance. Still having 100 players drafted each year by the league, um, you're seeing bigger operations. You're seeing teams now that are that are drawing a couple thousand, three thousand fans a night on certain nights. Um, we're having more good operators. You know, we've got the Durham Bulls now own a team um, in, in Holly Springs. You know, we've got more minor league. Op- Operators. So it's come a long way. What I've heard it's compared to minor league baseball in about the 80s or 90s, where a lot of people saw it as an opportunity to get in at a lower level and grow it. Um, so I think the big challenge for the Coastal Plain League is how to continue to expand, focus on the experience while keeping the high level of baseball. Because again, almost uh, you know 100 players are getting drafted every year. It's one of the top levels of baseball, but you got to balance that with the experience. If you have the best baseball and only 100 people are coming to the game, you have a challenge. Right. So that's what we're trying to help here in Savannah. Speaking of Coastal Plain League, and this is something that there's a, a popular rumor out there that I have a feeling is not true, that, that you guys have an interest in the Macon team. <laughs> Can you confirm or deny that? I will 100% confirm that we are not affiliated with the Macon Bacon team. <laughs> <Full> twist. <laughs> yeah, uh, that we are not affiliated at all. In fact, uh, I've never been to Macon in my life. So if, if I was involved with that team, I'm sure I would go visit them once or twice. I haven't seen the new stadium. I think people get confused because of the where the both uh, food, the only two teams in the league with food yeah, came out. We have a rivalry. Yeah, that. yeah. so uh, we are not involved in that team. But we've enjoyed uh, beating them a lot this year. Yes, yes we have. <laughs> So you mentioned the name, and it's a little sidelight, but the Macon Bacon, are you aware of what the Macon hockey team used to be known as? The Macon Whoopie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love see, see, I love anybody that thinks differently. These teams that go by the generic names, it's so boring. Do something different. So uh, salute to them, even though they're not in business anymore. Well, let's talk about the, the whole Bananas name here real quick. And that's I know when it was announced, a lot of people kind of – looked askance and and you mentioned that when you named the team your phone started to ring what uh not just happy people (laughs) a lot of people complaining too you can jump in on this yeah it was interesting when we first launched the name i mean within minutes we were trending on twitter i mean it had taken off uh, around the country and even internationally um locally people still hated it 
So it took a couple of weeks for the locals, I think, to see how much publicity it was getting Savannah. It saw they saw how much support we were getting from the rest of the world before they bought in. Then, of course, everyone was like, well, yeah, it's our team. And then they were proud of it. So I would say it was a gradual liking for, for the locals. Um, some people liked it right away. We did have a lot of people cheer when we first announced it at our press conference here. But it did take a little bit of time for everyone in Savannah mm-hmm. to get behind it. But it's a testament to Emily and how strong she is and how I believe we're such a great team. That night, even though nationally, internationally, I mean, we were selling merchandise all over the world and everyone was talking about us. It hurt how much um, terrible emails, Facebook messages, things we were getting, um, attacks. Locally, you know, the owner should be thrown out of town. You guys are embarrassments to the city. You'll never sell a ticket. What a disgrace to Savannah. Hundreds and hundreds of comments and emails. And she's stronger than me because she goes, Jesse, it's okay. Like we said, we got to get attention. We got to, you know, to be able to make this work. And uh, I didn't sleep that well on that airbed that night after. But Emily <laughs> kept saying, this is what we want. We're okay. People will realize what we mean. Fans first. And we're about fun and everything. It's just going to take time. And uh, fortunately, it did. You won over the locals with the name. You also, before you, before you all arrived, there was talk of building a new ballpark, that the ballpark is a problem. That nobody likes the bathrooms aren't big enough the concourses aren't big enough we need a bigger stadium it needs to be downtown it needs to be on the river it needs to be this it needs to be that i take it that that you embrace the stadium and obviously have made the most of it can you talk about your home i guess yeah, one of the first things that we did was put up a historical timeline at the ballpark because we want to celebrate that. We think that the history that's there, I mean, it was built in 1926. You can't recreate that. I don't care how shiny of a new building you get. So that was one of the things that we really wanted to celebrate from day one. And like Jesse mentioned earlier, we found out all of these greats had played there. We found out that FDR gave his presidential speech there. So those are the things that we really wanted to celebrate. Are there upgrades that we can make? Of course. And we will continue to try try to put in um, upgrades to help make a better fan experience for people. But all in all, the bones of that stadium, you can't recreate it. And we're going to continue to, I guess, uh, accentuate all of those beautiful Mm -hmm. architectures and then just the pieces of it that other stadiums Mm -hmm. are not lucky enough to have. Well, think about Savannah. It's built on the history. It's Mm -hmm. built on the character. And how many ballparks are there out there like Grayson Stadium? You know, almost every year, another ballpark gets abandoned. And they build this new shiny ballpark that in 20 years... Like the Atlanta Braves Stadium, you know, right. turn is is done, yeah, done, and they go move on. You know, we want to celebrate the history, celebrate the the things that make it special. And to us, I mean, that's the most amazing, beautiful ballpark in the world. And we've got big plans to continue to focus on that, but add more renovations to make it last another hundred years. How many ballparks last a hundred years? Right. And we're about to hit the hundredth anniversary. And we're going to make it huge. Well, you broached the topic of, of what's next. Your season, your third season just wrapped up. Of course, everybody take a little bit of a breather, but they're also looking ahead to what's next. And I know you just mentioned the ballpark. I have a feeling there's probably some other aspects of your business that you want to to tweak and evolve. Can you? What can you share with us? All right. You want some teases here? We'll give, we'll give some teases here. Um, we're going to have some big events coming up this next year. That's immediate. Some big events that have never happened at that stadium, which we're very excited for. But in the future after that, here's the question that we're always asking. And I tell everyone, any business I ever talk to, if I'm giving a speech, have a mirror moment. Put yourself in your customer's shoes and realize what frustrates you about the industry and the business that you're in. And with baseball, too many, it's long, slow, and boring. 
no matter how many crazy things we have going on during the game with dancing players and the pep band and the break dancing first base coach, the banana nanas, you name it, to many baseball still long, slow and boring. We are going to look in the next two to three years on how do we make baseball a faster game that's more entertaining, that people do not want to leave the game early. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we've sold 60, we sold 60 straight games, which has never happened at this level. Unbelievably fortunate. I can't tell you how much we pinch ourselves, but yet still people leave the games early and we have a director of fun and a pep band and everything going on. They still, that's a challenge with baseball. So the tease that I'll give you in the next two to three years, we're going to look on how do we make baseball dramatically faster, more entertaining that everyone won't leave. They'll stay till the end and they can't wait to see what happens next. You also mentioned to me before we came in here the whole idea of you're an entertainment company, but you're also a media company. Where do you see possibilities in terms of, of, of how you evolve, how you tell your story? Mm. Everything's storytelling. We're probably the only team in the country that has a full-time videographer uh, on staff. and We had two other videographers this summer working with us. Uh, we're going to look on how do we show our games, show our events in a different way. You know, imagine imagine watching a baseball game with a drone or, or cameras on players and mics and a camera on the, the umpire. Imagine seeing games and the experience in a whole different way. We're going to explore that because I think the fans deserve to see it in a different way and not the same way people have been watching a baseball game for the last 40, 50 years. So in the offseason, we're going to look at how can we use more media to tell the story. Um, you know, we've had documentaries done this summer. We've done some more behind the scenes. We, we rip open the curtain. I've had mics on me all day long. And whatever I say is captured. But I think that's what people want to, ha- want to see. They want to see the authentic, the real story, what happens behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And we're not afraid to show that in the next years, in a few years to come. Before we wrap up here, I, I, you've been in town long enough now to, and talked to pretty much everybody in every group in town. <laughs> and, and I've wondered what you all have learned, uh, what have you observed. I don't want you to trash anybody, throw anybody under the bus. But uh, as, you, as you mentioned, Savannah can be... Savannah can be a tough town. They, they don't necessarily really like change, at least not initially, and <laughs> and uh, it's it's a tough nut to crack. And I just, uh, as somebody that that came in from out of town and has had relatively quick success, what would you say is the uh, what have you learned? Really, other than the name announcement in the beginning, we haven't had a lot of negative pushback. Honestly, the the community has completely embraced the team now. Like you said, we've only been here for three short years, but we already feel like it's home. Um, we know people, regardless of where we go, the grocery store, the restaurants. I mean, we know people everywhere. Everyone's been really welcoming. So as quirky and weird and uh, funky as Savannah can be, I think it's also small enough, a small enough city that people know each other and we can go to events and get the support and and go and give the support for other groups who we've met through at the ballpark so it's a it's a fun small big city type feel and it's definitely home and and we love it here i can't tell you how humbling it is you know whenever we go out to dinner whenever we go to the grocery store people come over and just shake our hand and say thank you for what you brought to savannah and i'm turning to them and go thank you for giving us a chance Thank you for embracing us. It's my favorite moment every game. I sit at the, I, at the gates at the end of the night. The band's playing music. People are dancing. And people are just coming up and hugging us, shaking our hand, taking pictures and thanking us. And we're there to thank them. You know, it's an unbelievable city that I think gets it, understands. They want to have fun. This is a city that wants to have fun. And that's why the Yellow Tux, the director of fun, you know, all the craziness we do, that's why I feel like it's the perfect fit. And maybe this couldn't work in any other city. 
but we know it, this is the perfect city for it. And that's why we have big plans in the future to keep growing it. I can only speak for myself, but we really appreciate, I really appreciate what you've brought to town. I'm obviously, I, my background is in sports and I was, I went to the, the, the team that was here before a lot <laughs> and I always thought it could be more. And I really appreciate uh, what you, what you all have accomplished. Well, so thank you. It's our pleasure. We're thank just getting started. Yeah. Can't, can't wait to see the, <laughs> see what you do next year, but Thank you for coming in and joining us on Difference Makers, and uh, we look forward to to maybe revisiting this uh, a year or two down the road. Thank you for making a difference, yeah. Thank you.